This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 13, recorded on April 15th, 2019. Hello folks, you are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah and I'm here with Dr. Fawner. How are you doing today? Pretty good, only two more weeks and then I guess we're done with the semester and done here, right? Not even two more weeks, right? Um, not full weeks. Yeah, not even full weeks, man, because we've got Easter break, right? Two so more days this week and then really three, teaching, four days next yeah, week. Two more days this week and whatever teaching days you have next week. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then we are uh, done with the semester. And both you and I will be done with Teal. Yeah, this is our last semester at Teal College. Yeah, we're recording one of our last few episodes we here are. at Teal. So we are. Pretty exciting times. And then uh, we're both moving jobs. But I guess for our listeners, you'll have to tune in to find out where. We'll keep them in suspense for a few more episodes before we do the grand <laughs> reveal of our future institution. Yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely. And uh, so... Uh, so today's April uh, 16th, not April 15th. Did I say recorded on April 15th? It's April 16th, isn't it? You may have, but will that matter to our listeners that much? I don't think so. It matters to me, Fawner. Well, I know. You're very particular. (laughs) All right. So, uh, tell us about who was born on April 16th, 1921. So, Marie Maynard Daly, born, as you said, April 16th, 1921. She died on October 28th, 2003, at the ripe old age of 82, and she was an American biochemist who was actually the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in chemistry, what was that, back in 1947, and she did some postdoctoral graduate research at the Rockefeller Institute. She was studying the metabolism and composition of components of the nuclei of cells where she determined the base composition of deoxypentose nucleic acids, calculated rates of uptake of labeled glycine by components of the nuclei of our cells. Yeah, she did uh, She did some interesting interesting stuff. Pretty she advanced was, stuff uh, for, what, 1947 or late 40s, early 50s. That's so incredible. around the time of uh, discovery of DNA uh-huh. and publication of that, so she did a lot of stuff around sort of the similar themes but then went on to do some of the uh, uh, um, cellular components. Uh, and I mean, analysis. she basically laid the foundation for what I like to do with, you know, my professional career, uh, human physiology. She took a look at the investigated the metabolism of the walls of the arteries yeah. and how the relationship of the arterial wall played a role in aging, hypertension and atherosclerosis. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah, she uh, apparently was also uh, really known for promoting uh, minorities and women in science and uh, took on uh, advisees and uh, PhD students and postdocs from like uh, uh, ethnic backgrounds and uh, minority status. So she definitely was, somebody we should attempt to emulate oh, in absolutely. our professional careers. Well, she's, like she she's an African-American woman herself. Yeah, uh, Her dad, apparently, I found this out reading about her yesterday, uh, her dad was a Cornell student, and he actually had to drop out his second year, I think, because he didn't have uh, money to continue or something like that. And uh, she eventually set up a scholarship in his name. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. She's um, uh, pretty pretty famous for the science world. 
Well, then we have a little bit of an extra dose. We of do. We usually do born on the day, but we have, and I could not, I could not let it go because she's one of my favorite female scientists. So, and she almost, uh, well, she died unfortunately on this very day, young, yeah. back at the age of thirty-seven. So, April sixteenth, nineteen fifty-eight, is when she passed. And who was this very, very famous scientist? Rosalind Franklin. And uh, for those of you who do not know, but I'm sure most of you do, she, Rosalind Elsie Franklin, she was an English physical chemist and an X-ray crystallographer who contributed to the discovery of the molecular structure of deoxyribonucleic acid or DNA, uh, which is the genetic material that effectively encodes most or all of our genes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, she did very careful X-ray uh, diffraction photographs of DNA starting in 1951, uh, leading her to effectively suspect the uh, helical form of the molecule, at the very least under the conditions she had used. Yeah. And uh, uh, James Watson, uh, one of the two men credited with the discovery, Watson and Crick, Crick being the other one, Francis Crick, uh, when James Watson saw her photographs, he had confirmation of the double helix that yep. he and Francis Crick had postulated, and they eventually published that data. Uh, she never uh, received the recognition she deserved for her independent work leading to that discovery. Now we probably all, one of the largest travesties in oh, injustices science. of science, absolutely, yeah. because uh, she died of cancers of cancer four years before the Nobel Prize was awarded to uh, Crick and Watson. And I believe she died of ovarian cancer, and was that actually due to, or at least linked to, uh, the radiation that uh, she probably. used to work I mean, with same thing with Marie Curie, right? That's insane. Yeah, yeah, probably. Now, now we know. Now we know much better uh, when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I, I, I would hazard to guess, uh, borrowing a, a, an idiom you use, I would hazard to guess that it is due to. Uh, the all of the radiation yeah that's a shame uh anything else you want to add on these two i don't think so i think we just have a clarification from what was it our last episode or the episode before that i can't really remember um the episode before uh, newfer so episode number right. 11 okay so two episodes uh, ago number right, 11 right i misspoke well, there was just a little bit of, not uncertainty, but like you said, misspeak when it comes to what sclerosis is versus stenosis. I think you said sclerosis, and I said, oh, narrowing, and sclerosis is actually hardening, yeah. while narrowing is stenosis. So sclerosis is basically the excessive hardening of a tissue due to one potential cause being the overgrowth of fibrous tissue, such as scar yeah. tissue. Right. Right. But I mean, it could happen in bone tissue as well. It could happen in yeah. bone, you know, bone cancers, you know, liver disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, which is the destruction of the myelin sheath, etc. Right. 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 And then uh, you had mentioned stenosis before. What is stenosis? Abnormal narrowing of something, usually a vessel or a channel in the body. Some type of, exactly, channel in right. the body, spinal stenosis, you know, um, blood vessels, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Okay. So let's get into our topic. We have yet another special episode today. We've had a few special episodes, two interviews uh, with two different scientists. And uh, our special episode today focuses on the uh, Teal College Annual Scholarship and Arts Symposium. Mm -hmm. Uh, So last week on Thursday, Teal had its uh, annual uh, Teal Research Day, effectively. Uh, where students from all class ranks present scholarship to the Teal community, mostly in a day-long uh, symposium event. 
And uh, you and I had decided that there's so much exciting science and non-science happening at uh, Teal that it would be a shame not to sort of advertise that uh, a bit to the public. Well, that's what I really liked about the symposium, too, is the fact that it um, cast a spotlight on so many different fields, so many um, different students who conducted research. And these were students who ranged from first-year students to students who are getting ready to graduate in about two or three weeks here. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, these posters were very well done. Uh, a few of our students that we've either taught or advised in research, uh, a lot, you know, a lot of hard work and the culmination of a lot of, you know, very difficult lab efforts inside of you know the laboratory so right. absolutely it's nice and even non-lab non-lab posters as well and uh it, we did not have time to obviously interview everyone right we tried to take a sampling kind right. of a generous sampling right. across we also had fields. dr neil lax do one of the interviews with a poster so yeah shout out to neil absolutely and uh they were uh according to the abstract book 51 posters mm -hmm. at the event and uh, that's, a, that's a good significant number for, uh, this is in addition to the talks, right? Yeah. Uh, there were probably another 50 talks or so. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say there were uh, three concurrent sessions happening at the same time? And those were at about how long a piece? Uh, 20 so? minutes a piece. Uh, you mean for the talks? For the talks and so for the sessions. Uh, for the sessions, there were a couple hours in the morning, a couple okay. hours in the afternoon. So I would say probably about as many talks. Yeah, say another, you know, 50 talks or so. So uh, it, was, it was a good number of presenting students. I mean, uh, almost uh, uh, 15, 20% of our student body. Yeah. Uh, which is fantastic. So uh, what we had done here, folks, uh, just to give you a heads up of what's coming up in the episode, uh, we went around the poster session and uh, we interviewed students, uh, uh, those that agreed, obviously, uh, about their posters. Kind uh, of like on-site reporting, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the trenches. Absolutely. Felt like I was on in the uh, trenches. I like CNN it. or NBC or something. I got to play out my, you know, kind of reporter fantasy, I guess. Well, hey, at least you I didn't think, say Fox News. <laughs> well, there you go. I, I, make sh I made sure not to Not that clarify. there's anything wrong with any of you listening to it's Fox just not News. My, it's not my preference. <laughs> not, not my, my cup, cup of tea. Of tea. Exactly. Uh, so what we have here is uh, interviews. So the way we're going to do this sort of episode today uh, Fawner and I here will sort of discuss a particular poster really briefly, talk about the exciting science they did, and then we'll have you hear from the students themselves. Uh, so just a heads up, uh, we're going to go back and forth between us talking here uh, in the recording studio, effectively. We'll introduce my it, office. give a very, very... <laughs> right. <laughs> I do like it here. It's, yeah, I, I like it so much better than the radio. It's much more relaxing. Yeah. We can yeah. enjoy our coffee. Absolutely. You know, nice view. But... Um, what I like about this approach is we're each going to introduce whoever we interviewed, give just brief bullet points about what they studied, what the goal of their experiment was, and then you get, what, sometimes four, five, six minutes of the student's experience, right. what they learned from it, how they conducted the study, and you know, rather than us continuing to talk over and over, you hear it from the students' right. mouths, which is great. Right, and for those uh, student interviews, keep in mind these were done at a, a, at a hall where, you know, poster sessions, so there's some background uh, people noise. Uh, we've done as much uh, uh, noise editing on these before they get published to you guys. So uh, keep in mind, we're going to uh, oscillate back and forth between uh, us talking and then listening to the students. Exactly. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, get going here because we also have a 
faculty meeting in 40 minutes, don't we? T minus 47. <laughs> so um, one of the students that I interviewed, um, her name is Nancy Hritz, and I believe she's a biology major. Cons- she's conservation a conservation, conservation biology bio. Um, senior in bio. And again, I'll do my best to recollect what years and majors these students are. They also she's a senior. She graduates. They also America. state these at the beginning of their. But I'm, I'm not so well. sure we need all of them. I think if we just focus on the science, that'll be great. So that's your nice way of saying just go right in. Good. <laughs> so um, her main question and goal of her experiment was: uh, Does human presence in once rural areas affect local bird species choice in nest material? in Crawford County, so um, pretty close by. She studied, you know, focused on a um, kind of urbanized and previous rural area and focused on bird behavior, especially when it came to kind of selection of nesting locations. And of course, nesting is very important to not only the survival of current bird species, but the rearing of future bird species. In addition to uh, nesting locations, she also looked at nesting material. What what are these birds picking into Mm -hmm. those uh, nests? Exactly. And once again, her major goal or hypothesis was that human presence is indeed causing the choice of anthropogenic materials over natural materials and that local songbird species will end up choosing human-made materials over their naturally chosen materials if they prove to be more beneficial to the structure and integrity of the nest. Fantastic. All right. So uh, we're just going to go straight on to Nancy and uh, listen uh, to her from her project. Dr. Fawner here once again on site at the Teal Research Day. And here I am going to interview Nancy Fritz. So Nancy, uh, I've already given your name, but can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, I am a senior here at Teal College. I am in conservation biology with a minor in wildlife biology and food and agriculture. And I did a project on does human presence in one's rural areas affect local bird species choices in nest materials in Crawford County, Pennsylvania. So essentially just a background, birds will choose different materials for their nests um, out of necessity of what they need for their young because the nest is what actually protects the young and helps cultivate the healthy babies that we want. Okay. So in an ideal situation they will be taking all natural materials such as twigs, leaves, grass and items such as that. But when humans encroach on their bird the birds' habitats, what happens is they start taking the anthropogenic or human made materials that are left in the habitat by pollution or just being negligent to your surroundings. So people started finding things like cigarette butts and stuffing and just lint and stuff like that in different birds' nests. And it was found that these things like the cigarettes were actually affecting the mothers and the fathers as well as the baby birds. And it even affected the outcome of them surviving. So I thought it would be cool to see if the birds would like to choose natural materials versus unnatural materials. So I made four bird boxes and placed two in a more populated neighborhood and then two in a woods about a mile away. Okay. And a I, mile from here? Um, no, a mile oh, away from... Crawford from, County. Yeah, Crawford County. This. I did this in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Okay. I did it on my parents' property, my parents' neighbor's property. Oh, wow. And then I placed materials such as leaves, twigs, um, hay, what else did I use? I put out hair, moss, lichen, 
and then I did unnatural materials such as broom bristles and what else did I put? Cloth, ribbon, ropes, um, paper bags, and I didn't put anything like harmful to the birds. But then I put them at two different locations and would watch to see who took what. Unfortunately, the birds did not like my setup sites, so they really didn't visit them. So I did collect 11 bird nests and checked to see what was the composition at the end of the breeding season. And it did show that the nests that were in the human areas did take anthropogenic materials, okay. such as um, I found bike ribbons, cigarettes, yeah. uh, stuffing, plastic bags, plastic wrappers, tons of stuff. And then there was less in the wooded ones. So. Um, technically, I had to say it was inconclusive by doing my statistics, but from looking at them, I would say that the human areas did have an effect on the bird's nest. There's maybe a trend at the very yes. least, right? Yeah. Even if it was non-significant, it does look like, in terms of your amounts of material taken, right? Yeah. Uh, which uh, materials were taken the most? Um, it was grass and moss. Okay. And down here with, uh, I see you have a um, mean interval plot yes. down here. Okay. And what are what is this showing us down here in the uh, figure uh, two? Um, it is just showing like the interval or how much the amount of times things were taken because I took the weight before and after I put out each material. Oh, okay. So I forgot to say that part. But... I didn't, couldn't tell if some of it were birds taking stuff when I was not there present or if it was like wind blowing them. Okay. So we weren't very sure at how well we could rely on these. So what are you going to do with these results? Let's say if we paid you to come back for another year and you had to repeat this study, what would you do? What would I do? Jeez. Okay. Um, I would probably set up cameras and watch better and have more of a natural setting for my pickup sites because I had the stuff on cardboard. So I'd probably just plant them in a more natural looking material area, like under trees more. It's a good idea. And see if they would take things. And I would legit sit there for like hours on end. Okay. And this was under the advisement of Dr. Ballas, right? Yes. Perfect. No, this is very cool. I like this and it's always nice when you can do research from the comforts of your own home. It's pretty cool, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, another student you spoke to is Alonzo Brown and he looked at the effect of trust on uh, political participation. Is that right? Yeah, that in terms of such a relevant topic in, you know, current day, um, I couldn't imagine a better question to ask and try to answer than um, do attitudes about the government influence political participation. And what he investigated, he used um, public opinion data that was collected by the American National Election Studies Organization. You know, what I was impressed by this study is the N number. Yeah. He's got over, what, 4,000 respondents? Has, he has a lot of people. That yeah. is a ton, right? Yeah. And uh, pretty much, you know, you can create the survey, send it out to a... To a service that will send it out to people, right? Yep. And uh, his his end number is is massively impressive. But. And as we all know, you know, any students listening, and of course fellow researchers, the higher your end, the higher your sample size, the more validated the the and trustworthy yeah, the data and the analyses are. And his main question through his data analysis that he was trying to answer was um, how trust affects behaviors such as voting and campaigning for a candidate. Perfect. Let's hear from Alonzo Brown. 
And I am here with, introduce yourself. I'm Alonzo Brown, a senior here. Senior, and what do you have plans to do once you graduate here? Uh, I plan on going back home to Florida and uh, probably most likely working at a law firm right when I get out of school. So Very cool, very cool. And I'm standing here at a poster that is entitled The Effect of Trust on Political Participation, which especially in this political climate, these results probably mean a lot to a lot of folks. Yes. So why don't you go ahead and just give me a quick kind of summary and recap of what your poster is about and uh, what you found. Okay, so like, I, uh, like you said, um, if testing the effects of trust on political participation. Um, so what we used was the National Election Study of 2016. Um, which is a panel study uh, that they do, you know, a- interview questions before and after the election. Um, and we're trying to figure out whether trust actually does uh, impact political participation. Um, so I did use uh, seven dependent variables here um, to uh, make one compiled uh, dependent variable to measure political participation. Um, so you can see we have voting, um, attending rallies, wearing buttons, donating to campaigns, um, even persuading uh, can- uh, people to, you know, to vote, things like that. Um, whether they work for a candidate or not, or if they've made contact with candidates. Okay. Um, so out of those seven, we compile it into one form of levels of participation. Um, and these are the categories uh, which they fall in. So those that answered uh, no to all the questions, um, they were put into the low category of participation. Okay. Those that answered two or more, uh, we're put into the medium category of participation, and those who answer three or more were um, in the high level of participation. Okay. Um, so making that, it was all compiled for that to make the participation. Um, and then we had our independent variables for the trust. So we're measures of trust. Okay. Um, again, this is measuring uh, whether like they thought that the government was corrupt, okay. um, whether they were doing their job, whether they were wasting money, taxpayer money, um, or whether they were corrupt again. Um, and what was your? Not to interrupt you. I'll no, just you're ask good. Like you're one good. Two questions. Um, who were your respondents here? Was so the respondents, yeah, So these respondents were uh, random throughout the United States. Um, so they, what they do is they do it from different cities, different neighborhoods. It's definitely like completely random. Um, so there's 4,271 respondents, um, and they're all 18 or older. So you have to be able to. They don't have to necessarily be able to. You obviously have to be able to vote, but they don't have to be registered. So it's Got just it. anybody. Um, so they, what they do is they go to. Uh, a household on a you know random street, random city, and then they um, ask for the last person that had like the last birthday, okay. and then whoever did the last birthday or had the last birthday is the one that's going to be doing the, the survey. Great. Um, so once they do the survey, then they answer these questions. There's all different types of questions, you know, dealing with political behavior. So not just uh, you know trust or anything like that, but it's all political behavior in general. Um, and then that's how they figure out like what other you know the answers those questions. So what have we found out? Um, so based off of my research, uh, we can reject the null hypothesis. So we don't, we, there's not really any substantial impact that trust has on participation based okay. off of my research. Um, so as you can see, I know you can't really see it on here, but uh, high people that, those that were non-trusting, 23.4% of them had high levels of participation. Okay. And then those that were trusting, 23.9% had high levels of participation. So that's basically the same. Yeah, basically. So you would expect those that were not trusting to have lower levels. Way it didn't lower. Really, didn't really matter. Didn't really show here. Okay. And you can really see that. And as well, like I said, trusting is only 23.9. You would expect that to be higher, especially those who are more trusting. Um, so that's what the results show. Um, so as of right now, it doesn't seem like 
trust versus non-trusting has an impact necessarily. Has a, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have a huge impact. Okay. We know like maybe like personally it might have impact, but based off of the research I have here and the data, it doesn't really show a strong relationship. Um, there are some types of limitations on the like data, for instance, the measures of political participation, so the dependent variables. Um, certain resources are needed, so you need time to go vote, you need money to actually donate. So of course there are going to be like more people that didn't uh, donate because you need more resources for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, or, you know, you have to have, have to drive to go to rallies and speeches, things like that. So it just depends on the type of person uh, regarding the That's good that you knew the limitations, exactly. you were able to articulate those. That's, exactly. That's very, very good. No, I like this study. It's very interesting. Thank and you. At least based on this, out of how many respondents? The About 4,000. 4,000. So it's a pretty good sample size. Yeah, pretty say. good. Yeah, I'd be interested to see like how this would be conducted on like a large scale. A large see scale, if these, yeah. You know, these percentages are convincing, right? Yeah. They're basically the same whether you're non-trusting or trusting, but yeah, good study. All right, okay. thank you. Thank you, Alonzo. So you also spoke with Anna Gordon, uh, who is a freshman, I believe. She's yeah. actually in my cell biology class. Yeah, and Anna, she did a um, short creative story uh, focusing on monastic life. And basically what this short discussion will focus on is an overview of the creative process involved in how she wrote a short story focusing on a monk in an early medieval monastery. What I like about this one is that she actually wrote the story herself. So I she like researched that. sort of like yep. the life at the time and wrote the story herself. And this it actually being... calls back to um, uh, a previous episode we did from what was it right at the, the start? Plague. So yep. probably second episode, maybe third so episode. Almost something a year like ago. Yeah, yeah. So I did like the link between this poster and one of our earlier episodes. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So let's hear from Anna Gordon. Okay, Chris Foner again here at the Teal Research Day. And now I'm going to be talking about Anna Gordon. Uh, I'm going to be talking about her short story that she did titled A Change of Heart. So um, Anna, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a freshman and I'm a biology major. I did this story for my Creating Cultures class with Dr. Hall. I wrote a short story about a physician in a monastery. It's set in the Middle Ages when the Black Death was rampant in Europe. In the beginning of the story, the physician is upset that his parents gave him to a monastery as a baby. He thinks that if he were a physician out in the real world, that he would see more interesting medical cases and he thinks his life is kind of boring. But then some of the monks start to get symptoms of the Black Plague and they don't know what it is at the time until they receive a letter from a different monastery saying that there's a plague in Europe that's been wiping out millions of people. And then someone comes to collect all the sick people and the doctor from the monastery and they were taken to an island for quarantine. And the story finishes um, the last line with the doctor coming down with symptoms of the plague himself. So kind of a little bit of a sad, dour ending. Yeah. A little bit, okay. And what did you learn about the plague, about the Black Death? I learned that um, the plague doctors were actually like unskilled physicians. They weren't top doctors. And usually they ended up getting sick themselves because they um, poked air holes in their mask and ended up getting like breathing in the germs that way. And they also didn't wear gloves. So really that whole kind of um, sterile technique 
There are many different ways that, and you have a nice picture here that will be posted on the podcast in some form, but we can see what a typical doctor looked like with that kind of long beak-shaped mask, and you had said that there are holes in that mask that would allow the kind of, I see here, transmitted through fleas, right? Yeah. So it's very easily transmittable, likely through those holes, and then of course through the bare hands of the doctor. So that's, um, that's very interesting. Uh, what are some of the symptoms of the Black Death? So it can cause uh, fever, fatigue, the people can go into shock and vomiting and diarrhea, also symptoms. And this kind of was a very significant disease, wasn't it? I mean, it wiped out like a few hundred million people, right? Yeah. And okay. as I was reading about it, it said that um, some of the patients would get uh, like kind of pussy wounds and the doctors would sometimes use human excrement to try to sterilize it but it ended up uh, making it worse and making the like making the disease more fatal because almost like progressing it a little bit more yeah well uh thankfully medicine and medical techniques have advanced a lot more since then right so this is a, yeah, very fascinating short story. And uh, what did you learn the most from this? So from doing this as part of your class, what's the take-home message or what's the one thing that you're going to take with you from doing this? Um, that we should be thankful that medicine has progressed so far because the techniques used back then were so primitive. Very primitive and very poor even. Yeah. Probably due to these techniques is why this... Uh, uh, a minor reason why the Black Death was so uncontrollable. Okay, that was very good. Thank you very much, Anna. So you actually had two students that worked with you this past semester, right? Um, Dustin Maines and Brandon Forrester. And their main concept and kind of question was they wanted to look at the link between physical injuries and rates of depression in a population of college students. They did. So uh, both Dustin and uh, Brandon are uh, seniors. Uh, they're both my advisees as well for academic advising in addition to this project advising and um, they wanted to look at whether there's a link between physical injury and depression so they devised a survey uh, working in conjunction with a uh, uh, or with consultation with a psychology professor to develop a survey to measure whether uh, someone is feeling depressed or not and uh, they correlated whether there's a link between physical injury uh so mostly uh athletes right Mm -hmm. and uh depression and whether there's any correlation between uh uh, sex and depression of those injured individuals right Mm -hmm. and uh uh, they also wanted to look at whether there's a correlation between uh, age or class rank and depression for some of these athletes and And they they have some some pretty cool results i found yeah they have some interesting data that um I'm not going to tell you about we'll have them tell you about. So let's have a listen to Dustin and Brandon. So our research looked at um, to see if there was a correlation between physical injury and depression. Uh, we based our study off of a few studies done in Canada looking at uh, patients that were in hospital that were 18 to 64 years of age to see if there was a, phys- or a, a correlation between physical injury and depression. And another study done in Canada that looked at athletes that had concussions to see if they had a a correlation between their injury and depression and we ho- hypothesized that uh, there would be a correlation between f- 
physical injury and depression in the rural college students. All right, perfect. So that sets it up uh, quite nicely. Uh, did, what did you want to add something on that? I was going to uh, add another hypothesis that we had. We also uh, had a hypothesis that the more severe the physical injury, that the more depressed the individual will be. As well as we thought that age and sex would have a factor with these results as well. Okay, so what did you guys find? Uh, we uh, uh, he, start? he starts, yeah. So we found that there was a higher number of the higher depre average depression score for the injured students than the non-injured students. They had a depression score of 12 compared to 10.63. So those individuals that report an injury have a higher average depression score? Yes. Okay. And um, what was the uh, survey or like based on what test did you use for calculating depression scores? Uh, we used the Beck depression and the Beck depression scored the individuals based on their answers. The answers were ranged zero to three. Zero being like nothing at all, like normal. One was slightly and then two was like on the verge of like being depressed and three was the max they could get. And then of those answers, if they were above 17, they were considered in a depressive state. While they were, if they were below 17, they were considered in not a depressive state. And that's combining the total score of how many questions in that survey? There was 18 depression questions in the survey. Okay, perfect. Uh, all right, what else did you guys find? Uh, we found that there was a higher depression score with people that had injuries to the head and neck area of the body compared to the upper body, which looked at uh, waist to shoulder. And com the lower body had a higher s depression score than the upper body. Uh, and the lower body looked at anything below the waist. So the highest depression score was found in head and neck injuries? Yes, the it scored an average of 15.5 on the depression okay. score. And any uh, differences when it comes to sex? Uh, yes, there is a difference. There is a slight difference, but not much of a difference to tell. The female... Can we talk about this one? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, the females who were injured was a 12.48 on the depression scale, while the males who were injured were 12.67. Okay, so al almost similar, I would say, yeah? Almost similar, yes. And then, there, however, the female non-injured and the male non-injured, there was a significant difference between those. The female non-injured were 11.62, while the male non-injured were 8.78. And those are scores on that depression scale? Yes. But, um, so, so higher numbers, so what's sort of the take-home message, right? Higher numbers in injured, higher numbers in head and neck injury, and... Although no differences between injured in females and males, there are differences between non-injured females and males. Did I get that right? That is correct. All right, perfect. Well, to do the future research. Oh yeah, sure. What are your future directions? Uh, future directions. We want to look at age range between like freshman versus a senior uh -huh. in athletics. Uh -huh. We believe that a freshman who is injured will be less depressed than a senior who is injured. This is. We think this is due to. The female, or not females, the freshman sitting out of a sport for a season versus the senior who won't ever get to play the sport ever again. Okay. So that's why we think the senior will be more depressed. Now, do, do, do you have that data now? Do you think you can like go back, dig into the data to find that answer, or you got to do the survey again? We do have data on this right now. We just did not run the 
data analysis on this as of right now. But we could do it later if we wanted to. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. So two students that we've both had the pleasure of teaching, both currently and in the past, Ashley Prout and Brianna Message, um, did a C-phages project where they isolated microbacterium um, florium bacteriophages from nearby soil samples here at the college, which I find pretty cool. No, this is a cool project. So effectively, what they're looking at is bacteriophages, and bacteriophages are viruses that infect bacteria. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some circles, they're seen as alternatives to antibiotic therapy and uh, particularly now more prudent with antibiotic resistance. So one of the things that they looked at is, you know, uh, bacteria is everywhere. And thus, as a result of that, bacteriophages are everywhere. So you can isolate soil samples and try to look for bacteriophages. Uh, so what you do in this particular case is grow the bacteria of interest uh, on a plate and um, uh, dump your... Uh, soil samples on that. Obviously, there's some purification steps. You're of not just course, dumping soil on there. Right? The soil You're stage, isolating yeah. phages. Mm -hmm. And then um, if you see any uh, plaque formation or clear spots in the plate that indicates a presence of a phage, and then you can isolate these, uh, characterize them, sequence them, and such. And we'll, we'll just have the students tell you about the project, but it's a pretty neat one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's hear from uh, Ashley Pratt. So I'm here with Ashley Proud, and uh, her poster is about uh, phages. She's on the hunt for bacteriophages. Yeah, tell us about those. What are bacteriophages? So phages are viruses that infect bacteria. Uh -huh. So they attach to the cell and essentially hijack bacteria cells so that they have to produce um, an immense amount of phage. So they'll attach to the cell, insert their own DNA, and make a sort of factory out of the cells, and then they'll explode and form plaques. Okay. And those plaques are what we're looking for when we search for phages. So by plaques, you mean that first you grow bacteria on a plate, right? And then you add these samples to them looking for phages. And if one of those samples has a phage, what do you expect to see on the plate? So since we plated bacteria, it gets sort of a cloudy look on it. So when you um, put the phages with the bacteria, you get this sort of... Um, clearing in the bacteria so you can see through the plate in that area where normally you can't because that's the bacteria on it. So your uh, classical plaque assay with, with viruses. Perfect. And uh, have you found, so you're looking at samples around Teal College, is that right? Yeah, so we actually found our phages by the Glenn Johnson Center okay. uh, earlier this fall. So how many locations did you sample? Um, we actually sampled nine total. Only one place actually came up with phages. So we found two for sure phages. And right now we know that that location has phages. Have we identified uh, what kind of phages they are? So we named our own phages. There's two separate ones. Uh, we named one Swale and the other one Linlin. Uh, they have two different morphologies. Say the names again. Swale okay. and Linlin. Okay. And are these unique phages as far as we know? As far as we know, they could be. Um, you never really know if a phage is unique unless you sequence it. So okay. there might be another phage that someone found somewhere else. So once we sequence it, we can put it into the C phages DBS, okay. and they'll let you know if someone else has discovered your phage before you. And uh, the bacteria you're using is which one? Microbacterium foliorum. And that's like, uh, tell us a bit about that. It's an actinobacteria. It grows at 30 degrees Celsius, so it's a BSL-1. So it's kind of one of the safer versions of bacteria. Obviously, no bacteria is like fully safe. 
So our goal actually for one of the experiments that I'm going to work on with Swale is to expand the host range. So we'll test our phages to see if they could infect other microbacteriums. And are we going to sequence any of these? Uh, that's actually Bree's project. Her okay. goal is more towards the genetic side, whereas I'm going towards the bacterial side and the host ranges. But she does intend on doing bioinformatics on her specific phage. That's Lin Lin. Perfect. So it's really mine. Uh, anything you want to add? No. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for talking with us. <laughs> Thank you. So the next poster and discussion comes to us from Jordan Ransom. And what he was investigating was if German shepherd saliva inhibited the growth of Staphylococcus epidermidis and Micrococcus luteus. So really looking at um, if the saliva collected from German shepherds have the ability to inhibit the growths of these specific bacterial strains. Right. So he had a pretty neat project. Uh, I already, it, it originally came on my radar back in uh, senior seminar last fall where I make the seniors present uh, preliminary data for you know the projects that they finally present you know a semester later right yeah so and um it's a it's a pretty neat project so he, he has a bunch of uh, german shepherd dogs uh, both males and females and he uh collected saliva uh from these dogs and added that to uh, fully grown plates uh in in the lab uh, petri dishes, effectively, of Staphylococcus and Micrococcus luteus. And then went through and identified what these... Well, he, uh, he did not get that far. So okay, I see. He looked at whether there's inhibition uh, of growth. So by adding the saliva to mm -hmm. these, effectively uh, doing a, sort of a plaque assay, if you will, right? Yep. Uh, looking for clear zones. And he did find some uh, uh, clear zones. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, the next steps of the project would be to try to identify uh, what in the saliva is causing the inhibition of growth of these uh, organisms. Got it. Yeah, it's a pretty neat project. So we'll have uh, Jordan uh, tell you all about that. And Jordan is a, a senior actually graduating this semester. So I guess the project will be handed on to or handed off to someone else. Yeah, I was going to say I hope this continues because it definitely has legs to, you know, for future projects. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so let's hear from Jordan. So I'm here with Jordan Ransom and he studied whether German shepherd saliva can inhibit the growth of Staphylococcus epidermidis and Micrococcus luteus. So uh, tell me about your project. So pretty much uh, what I wanted to try to figure out was whether or not, like you said, if German shepherd saliva inhibits, inhibits uh, Staphylococcus epidermidis and Micrococcus luteus. Uh, so pretty much to uh, start with, I wanted to see if there was actually any other types of flora on there as well to kind of see if something else would grow on top of the bacteria or if it would just inhibit it like I figured it, like I figured it might. So to kind of start, I grew these different plates. So A and C are actually Micrococcus luteus and then B and D are Staphylococcus epidermidis. So for those listening, right, so what we're looking at here is uh, petri dishes with uh, different uh, bacteria grown to a lawn confluence effectively. Yeah, exactly. So as you can see here, uh, on the plate you can actually see the bacteria grown in yellow. Uh, and then on this side, it didn't really grow that well for the Staphylococcus epidermidis. And it's kind of due to the fact that I had to follow the American Society of Microbiology rules. I couldn't grow this past 37 degrees Celsius because at that point, uh, human-born pathogens can grow. And that's not really good at all. So 
we kind of just we didn't really ditch the idea we still tested it but it just didn't give us the results that we were looking for so we continued with micrococcus luteus uh, so what we did was we grew micrococcus luteus on tsa plates which is triptic soy auger it just helps it to grow better grow better bacteria and then on uh, even though we didn't really use it staphylococcus epidermidis we grew on uh, nutrient auger which is just what helps that grow a little bit better and then once we did that we actually grew micrococcus luteus at 25 degrees celsius and then for the first test on staphylococcus epidermidis we do we did uh, 30 degrees celsius and then for the second test we tried it a little bit differently and did 35 degrees celsius we're kind of cutting it close to the microbiology uh, laws pretty much but after that we just decided not to use it anymore so once I actually had both the lawn or b- both the bacterias grown and I had the samples, the gathering of the samples was actually relatively easy. I thought it was going to be a little bit difficult, but pretty much just stuck in a Q-tip, a elongated Q-tip, and then pretty much just pulled it right back out and just covered it with a uh, sterilized cap. So. so these are Q-tips that you insert into the mouth of uh, dogs? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, just out of curiosity, where did you get your dogs? Uh, so it's actually kind of a funny story. My high school and middle school bus driver actually breeds German Shepherds. Okay. So I was actually lives right down the road from me, so I was actually able to use her dogs. So it was pretty cool. Definitely one of the times I didn't think having a school bus driver as a friend would come become useful. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Okay, cool. So what did you find? So pretty much on Micrococcus luteus, we saw that there was actually inhibition of growth on female dog 2 and female dog 5. And then on uh, male dog number two, there was also inhibition, inhibition of growth. Uh, it's kind of tough to tell a little bit, but you can see there's slight inhibition of growth in these areas. And then, so you have some saliva inhibiting growth of staph and some not. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not staph. It's just the micrococcus. Oh, that's the micrococcus. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, we tried it on the staph epi, like I said, but it just didn't grow right. It didn't inhibit the growth or anything. So we just stuck with uh, micrococcus. So after we did it the first time and saw that we had a little bit of inhibition, we did it again. But unfortunately, I messed up and I scraped a little bit too hard with the samples and I actually took bacteria off. So even the negative control <laughs> had uh, inhibition of growth. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you differentiate between, because saliva has a lot of microorganisms yeah. growing in it, right? How do you know it's like a saliva protein versus maybe another organism secreting some sort of an antibiotic or inhibiting to compete with the other bacteria. So it's actually kind of cool because one of her dogs at the time was actually on antibiotics and it was actually helping. I forget what she said exactly, but uh, she was actually on antibiotics at the time. And actually one of her saliva samples, she was number three. She was number three and actually didn't actually... uh, inhibit growth and then as for like other bacteria growing on it it's actually kind of what i wanted to see as well see if any of the uh, natural flora inside of dog's mouth would actually grow on top of the micrococcus so that would be an interesting sort of next step yeah yeah, yeah. definitely if i had more time i would definitely run more experiences experiments like this and definitely try some new things for sure cool. well uh, anything else you want to add for your poster Uh, No, not really. Any questions or anything? No, I think we're good. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks. All right, cool. Another project that was presented uh, uh, was a project by uh, uh, two students, Julia Wagner and Joel Reitz, and it involved an eye-tracking software. And what's really cool about this project is that they 
built the uh, eye tracking software from scratch and uh, they uh, decided to see uh, or the project title is do your eyes follow what you believe and uh, they looked at uh, two two kinds of people i suppose uh, cat people or dark people uh, self-identified as a cat person or a dog person and then they were shown a bunch of images on the my, uh, on, on the screen of a uh, computer and then the software tracked whether they fixated more on cats and dogs uh, uh, to see if they really are uh, effectively who they say they are and uh, the uh, uh, like I said the nice thing about this is that this was uh, all built uh, in-house uh, so without further, and this is a, 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 an interview that was done by a colleague of ours who's not here today to tell us about it, uh, Dr. Neil Lax. Uh, so uh, without further ado, let's hear from Julia and uh, Joel. Okay, so I'm talking to Julia and Joel here on their project that they did related to eye tracking. Do you mind telling me a little bit about what you did? Uh, sure. So last semester, Joelle here, she worked on building an eye tracker, and then this semester we partnered up and fixed some of the hardware issues we had with the eye tracker, and then we each did our own separate projects. So this poster here is showing my project, which is looking at cats and dogs. So we had participants fill out a survey to rate if they identified as a cat person, and then if they also identified as a dog person, if they had cats or dogs, because studies do show that if you have a cat, for example, you are more likely to look at cats uh, for longer periods of time compared to dogs. So for those of people who might not be familiar, describe what eye tracking is. How does it work and what, what do you measure with it? Okay, so for eye tracking, it then measures uh, the motion of your eye relative to your head. So we had an eye tracker that looks specifically at your right eye and we can calibrate it then to see where you're looking on the screen in the quadrants. So for example, our calibration, you look at the top left and you stare at that for um, a couple seconds, a set period of time, and then it moves on. So that way for further testing, we can see exactly where you're looking on the screen. So for example, if you put a picture of a human face on the screen, you could tell if somebody's looking at their eyes first or focusing on their mouth or what part of their face they're looking at in great detail. Uh, you can do it, however, ours does not get into as detail as some of the more expensive ones, as this is an underground, underground, undergraduate cost-effective eye tracker. Some of the more expensive ones can get into a lot higher detail than ours can, though. That's great. So tell me a little bit about the specific study you did here looking at the cats and dogs. Okay. So, like I said before, participants were to rate if they were a cat person and then if they were also identified as a dog person. And then after our calibration of the eye tracker, we had them look at a screen with cats and dogs, one on the left half, one on the right half, and it was randomized which animal was on which side of the screen. They were asked to then click left arrow key or right arrow key for which animal they found more cute. And from there, we're going to be analyzing the data for which animal they looked at for a longer period of time and for how long it took them to hit the left or right arrow key and if that relates to which one they found more cute. Will you also be able to tell if their eyes agreed with what they thought was more cute based on how long they looked at something? Uh, we can look at that by also identifying with their survey results. If you identify as a cat person, then if you're going to look at the cat more or if you're going to look at the dog more. Awesome. Goes. And are those results um, going to be analyzed here soon? Is that what the plan is? Yes, so we are hopefully going to be analyzing that in this next upcoming week and get some data so that we can put them up. Awesome, thank you very much. And I was talking here with Julia and Joel about their eye tracking project. Great job, guys. 
Okay, and uh, you talked to uh, another student, right? Uh, Milena Kirshner. Is Milena that right? Kirshner. She's actually currently in my HPA course, uh, or I'm sorry, HPI course, HPI uh, 201, 202 rather. Well, I'm on fire today. And um, she, I believe she's a freshman, and she was investigated some of the common themes that are popular among myths from various cultures and stories in the Bible, and the specific uh, significant similarities and differences that connect these different myths and stories across not only various cultures, but as I said, uh, significant stories that are found inside of the Bible. And again, she references uh, flood stories and also themes focusing on creation, the afterlife, and nature. Fantastic. And this is one of those uh, posters that is a non-science poster, mm -hmm. but uh, even though this is a science podcast, we figure we'd give you sort of a flavor of some of the research that was done uh, this past year. And again, this is about really focusing on the student's hard work. And you right. could tell even um, non-science based, uh, Milena put in a lot of effort in terms of her exploration of these different myths, Bible stories, and the themes. All right. On to uh, Kirshner's interview. Okay, Chris Foner again, and here I am going to be interviewing Milena Kirshner. And at this point, I'm going to stop talking. Milena's going to tell our audience a little bit about our, uh, a little bit about yourself, rather. Go ahead, Milena. Hi, um, I am in Dr. Hall's Korean Culture class, and inspired from various selections we examined in class, I decided to explore common themes of myths and biblical stories, um, focusing on creation, afterlife, and flood stories that were found in various cultures. Um, pertaining to creation, I found that there were two creation accounts in the Bible that kind of contradict each other, and they had many similarities with that of the Sumerians and the Semitic people. Um, and then pertaining to afterlife, um, various mystery religions of ancient Greece, uh, the Divine Comedy by Dante, the Tibetan uh, Book of the Dead, and the biblical view on afterlife all had rebirth at its core with various aspects um, that kind of overlapped. And then pertaining to the flood stories that were in the flood myth of the Maori of New Zealand, the flood story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the flood story in the Bible, rebirth was also at the core of that in which um, humans were punished for their sins and straying from God's path, which is also present in the afterlife accounts. Um, and then uh, it was a rebirth of the world then following God's word. So that was my main point. Okay. Uh, so what's the main kind of theme or main takeaway message that you got from doing all this research this semester? I found that humans are and have always been naturally curious individuals, and we're constantly trying to find answers to life's great questions. And in doing so, um, various cultures have borrowed elements from other cultures to like kind of um, hypothesize these answers, and while keeping the same, um, their own individual elements to stay unique and define their own cultures for themselves. So here's going to be the tough question that I just kind of thought of, and you know, based on. We don't have to get into, you know, what religious views are and anything like that. But based on, let's say, this poster and maybe what you've learned and maybe what you feel even, what's your view on maybe the afterlife? Regarding the afterlife, I think for sure, as like many of the cultures had in common, I think it is a rebirth um, and it is a very important journey. Like as the Book of the Dead and Dante's Inferno had in common, it's important to have a companion 
Um, so I think it's like very important to recognize the soul's journey, and it is a result of life on Earth and everything. And so everything you do while you're on Earth does yes. matter, makes an impact in the afterlife. Yes, and it's the idea of rebirth after death, and it's life reborn again, basically. And that's kind of the idea of all four cultures that I examined. Okay, so. very fascinating. That's great. All right, well, good job, and uh, thank you, Melina. Thank you. Another person uh, or persons you spoke to is Mark Kipinski and Hannah Rossman, and they did a project with you, right? Exactly. So this picked this up. This is on... our longest interview, by the way. I'll have you know this this ran on for eight nine minutes. So are you saying that there was a little bit of bias here? Bias so, because it was your yeah. project. Yeah. So um, I'm not afraid to say that you know this happened to be let's say one of my favorite posters from the symposium, <laughs> and this was again performed the research by Mark Kapinski and Hannah Rossman. Uh, Mark is a junior. Hannah is a senior. And they really wanted to kind of apply what they learned in my previous physiology labs um, using dif different measuring software of like cardiorespiratory variables and see and investigate how stress is kind of affected and how stress changes throughout the semester in what I hear is one of the more notorious, infamous, and difficult and <laughs> grudgingly accepted courses at Teal College. Uh, of course, I'm talking about cell biology taught my, by... My course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. none other than Dr. A. And what they the did was... The source of most uh, biology misery. Yeah. There you go. And so uh, what they will be talking about with you today is exactly what they investigated, the variables, um, including heart rate, blood pressure, etc., and how they correlated these variables with um, exam performance. So did if a student was more stressed, did that tend to be associated with increased exam scores, decreased exam scores, and what are some of the conclusions they found from this study? So they measured uh, blood pressures using a sphygmomanometer. Mm -hmm. That's your regular, you know, a blood cuff. Uh, with, uh, yeah, the famous blood pressure right, cuff right. in any medical show. And then uh, what else did they measure? What is the... Um, other uh, pulse plethysmograph. Yeah, that so one. So they used a plethysmograph to measure kind of just pulse rate, so indicated as heart perfect, rate. Perfect, perfect. And then they used a respiration belt that goes just around the sternum to measure rate of breathing. Perfect. And then um, they also took uh, saliva samples in order to do a future kind of enzyme levels. test on stress hormone cortisol levels. Right. But unfortunately, because of the vast amount of data they collected so far this semester, looks like that'll wait until next year when they end up doing the ELISAs. Uh, well, we did the cortisol levels and ELISAs a few years back with mm -hmm. two different students in the same course. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did see a trend with uh, increased cortisol levels around exam times. There you go. But, okay, let's uh, listen from uh, Mark and Hannah. Okay, Chris Foner again at the Teal Research Day, and I'm going to be talking to my own students who conducted a pretty cool stress study on an upper-level biology course, and the title of their poster is Stressed Out, the Stress Impacts of an Upper-Level Biology Course on Teal College Students. So here with me, I have two of one of my some of my very best students, uh, Mark Kapinski and Hannah Rossman. Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Mark. Uh, I'm a biology major here at Teal. Uh, currently, I'm a junior. I'll be graduating May 2020, and hopefully, be working in the lab after I graduate. Very cool. And Hannah, tell us about yourself. 
Hello, my name is Hannah Rossman. I am a former Teal student. I recently graduated in December 2018. I studied biology. Um, in May 2019, I will be attending Mercer's University for their physician assistant program. So you literally have a summer vacation of what, like three weeks, and then you're off to work? Okay, good. While well, I'm at the beach in June, you're going to be opening cadavers up and I'll be laughing at your expense. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit of the background here. Uh, and you guys, like we talked about before, just kind of go back and forth, do this as a team. Uh, what is stress and why, you know, why is stress important? What fascinates you about stress? Um, for me, stress is a like, very important figure in college in general. Uh, with all my friends, I hear every day how stressed out they are because of an exam that's coming up. So that's what really interests me when it comes to stress. Yeah, exactly. Like, we all personally have experienced it, whether it is academics, athletics, being uh, part of different organizations. Um, it's a physical or mental strain that occurs in the body. I mean, there's two different types, acute and chronic. Acute, it's that type of stress that just occurs, you know, instantaneously. It's very um, quick and adaptive. Uh, chronic, however... It's just the type of stress that occurs over time, and it, it can be harmful and even inflict negative physiological uh, changes. So what are some of those changes that more long-term chronic stress can do? Um, it could cause a rapid heart rate, high respiration rate, and even a big issue nowadays is high blood pressure. Okay. So what was the overall kind of goal of the experiment? What did you guys hope to do and discover at the end of the experiment? Uh, for our experiment, we wanted to see if there was a correlation between high stress levels and the exam grades of the students in cell biology here at Teal. And how did you do your study here? So what were some of the... So how many times did you uh, test this uh, cell biology cohort? And what were some of the methods that you used to collect your data? Uh, well, so far we've collected data twice from this class. Um, we are hoping to get at least one or two more times just to get more data into the study. Um, we administered a 14-question que question questionnaire uh, to these students prior to collecting their physiological responses. After we gave that questionnaire, we had them sit down in a room with us and we took their blood pressure with a sphygmomanometer and we got their heart rate and respiration rate with a pulse plethysmograph and a respiration belt that was hooked up with iWorks. Okay, very good. And so you did this before basically like each major exam up to this point, right? Yes. And two major kind of groups of data here. So we have like correlations, right? Yes. And in these correlations, you have data from exam two. So how exam two scores correlated with these different cardiorespiratory variables. And then exam three grades with the cardiorespiratory variables. Who wants to tell me about exam two? Uh, for exam two, the mean arterial pressure graph, we had a negative correlation of about 0.028, which isn't very high, but it is significant. Um, for the respiration rate, it was negative 0.0402, which is also very low, but is significant. And our best significant is 0.3209, which is negative for heart rate. Um, this just shows how the stress level was higher for exam two, and the exam score showed by not being as high. Okay, so basically with these negative correlations, as things like blood pressure, respiration rate, and heart rate increased, the scores tended to go down, yes. is what these correlations say. How about for exam three, Hannah? All right, so for exam three, um, our mean arterial pressure uh, correlation was a lot lower than um, in comparison to exam two. 
and also respiration rate was very low in comparison to our correlations we recorded from exam two. Um, unusually, the heart rate correlation that we got for exam three was positive. Um, this kind of goes against our hypothesis that students with higher cardiorespiratory levels, uh, stress levels, will tend to have lower exam scores. In this case, the higher um, heart rate corresponded to the higher exam scores. So this is kind of telling us what about exam three compared to exam two. Mark, you had hinted at it before, but in terms of kind of your conclusions, what can you say about exam two versus exam three? Uh, for exam two, we believe that it was more stressful for the students. Uh, we actually got confirmation from the professor that was teaching, which is Dr. A. Uh, he said that exam three was easier than exam two. Okay. And what's another possible explanation as to maybe why there was a difference in the stress levels with these two exams? Um, well, we could guess that students kind of become more acclimated to how Professor uh, Dr. A teaches and almost they are putting in more time to studying. They're just getting more help. They're going to these study hours and just becoming more... Uh, Involved with their course. academics, yes, yes. So what could you guys, like, main take-home message here? What's the one thing that you guys kind of got or determined from doing this research? Hannah, you've been doing this research and preparing it since the fall. Mark, you've been towards the end of the fall, and, you know, both of you have been actually performing this over the spring semester. So what are your guys' kind of, like, take-home message here? Uh, for me, it's mostly that... If you're a student that's stressed out, really start studying and paying attention in class. I think that'll alleviate a lot of the stress that comes with exams. Uh, go to office hours. They help a lot. Um, not only better your exam, but lower your stress levels. Oh, yeah. And don't wait until last minute. I was a big procrastinator, and I would wait till last minute. And then I'd come to, you know, Dr. Fon or Dr. A's office, you know, crying, like, I need some help. Like, I need... Like, especially if you don't understand anything, like something, ask questions. There's absolutely nothing wrong with asking questions. It's better to understand something than just to be timid or quiet and have no clue what's going on. <laughs> All right. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Hannah. Very good wrap-up and discussion here. And uh, talk to you guys later. Our last poster and discussion comes to us from Katie Campbell, Brandy Erdman, and Jessica Orczek. And um, Jess is one of our graduating seniors. Is she a senior the, already? Yeah. Oh, she's wow. wrapping up her, her tenure as Tri Beta president. Ah, and yes. she is. Of um, which you are an advisor. Uh, of which I am wrapping up my wrapping advising, up advising. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tenure here before I'm off to greener pastures. And. Um, yeah, she's moving Well, I mean, on, it's always greener. The, the, the lawn is always green. What's, what's the oh, saying? Oh, the grass so? is always greener on the other side. Yeah, yeah. You could say that about anything, I guess. Um, but her and her fellow students and friends did a study on mental health accessibility and stigmas in rural communities, and this actually was part of all three of these students' service learning project. And it looks like they focused here on, what, about 80 rural hospitals 
that have shut down since 2010. These are not nationwide around the country. There has oh, okay. been around that much. So these are just previous. Um, I apologize. Sort of stats, yeah, kind yeah, of stats. preliminary statistics here. Right. And uh, looking at a, they investigated a small rural town uh, where mental health is maybe not as talked about as it should be. It's kind right. of again like stigmatized again. So so the idea of this is pretty much that you know in bigger cities uh, there are more hospitals, more resources, and less stigma about mental health and in smaller rural communities which is where we are effectively in Teal College mm -hmm. there's not as much accessibility but in addition to not as much accessibility there's also some stigma associated with uh, mental health. Well, it seems like these students kind of to provide a good intro into the upcoming discussion um, they took a very active approach here in the Greenville community, and I they did. really want to applaud them for this because Absolutely. they decided to, okay, rather than talk about things, they took an active approach where it looks like they in, attempted to inform the local community and members of the community about mental health services that are both local and affordable. And this includes phone numbers to call, apps, websites, and locations within the community right. for individuals to seek help with uh, their mental health. Yeah. Uh, the really neat thing about this project as well is that uh, the uh, information or the infographic flyer, whatever you want to call it, that they created uh, in that they distributed to these centers in one of the actual hospitals or centers here in Greenville, it's become part of the standard uh, handout fare effectively to uh, That's awesome. local communities. Yeah. That's really great. And uh, let's hear from uh, Katie, Brandy, and Jessica. Okay, so I am here with Katie, Jessica, and Brandy, and they're going to tell us about mental health accessibility and stigmas in rural communities. So who wants to start? All right, we'll start with Brandy. Okay, so first we've seen that it's predicted that 673 rural hospitals are actually supposed to close within the next 10 years, which is something we're already seeing locally here in Greenville. And also that the many smaller clinics and hospitals have already been bought by um, larger companies, and then they're funneling their patients to suburban and urban specialists, which leave the patients having to drive over an hour usually just to go see a doctor or a psychologist or any sort of specialist. And another big issue in rural communities is that the people usually only have one type of insurance to choose from, whereas in urban settings or bigger cities, there's about usually three to choose from. And then another big issue is the stigmas that are associated with mental health and um, how they're a significant barrier to uh, receiving mental health care and how they're an issue not only in the general public, but unfortunately it's an issue among healthcare professionals who are the ones who are supposed to be helping you. And um, the stigmas actually impact the individual as well as the family and influence the seeking of uh, receiving help in a negative manner. Um, so because of these stigmas, older generations are taught to keep things within the family. And because of that, younger generations are taught to also do that. So we don't know how to seek help or to give help. And because of that, we have problems arising in our community. Um, it's because of the social cure theory where most people go along with the influence around them. So to try to beat this social cure theory, we handed out pamphlets to community partners. One of the ones that we should mention is Paletta Counseling. They're actually cross-referencing our pamphlet with their services to make sure they have as many as they can offer to everyone. All right. 
So with our uh, pamphlet we handed out, we included a few different uh, key information bullets. So first we included different uh, statistics to help people understand that they are not alone when dealing with mental health problems. We also included the necessary hotlines for Mercer County and the National Suicide Hotline. We also listed the services that are directly in Mercer County that people can actually go to and also the free websites and phone apps that people can use to access mental health services just from their technology. So overall, we distributed about 50 pamphlets all through Mercer County with eight different community partners. And this had a large personal impact on ourselves and we learned a lot. We learned that um, about all the services offered in Mercer County, we did not realize that there were so many along with how many phone apps there were. And we also realized that this seemingly small project can have a big impact on people and we really hope that people are able to utilize this information to help themselves. No, this is a great outreach effort. So where, where do we go from here? What do you think sort of is the next uh, step in this? Are there any follow-ups that you intend on doing? Not so much follow-ups, but Dr. Dietz had brought up a really good point of bringing somebody who grew up in a rural community, having them train as a counselor and bring them back. Because if you have somebody who's a city dweller, they don't understand what it's like to live in a rural community where all these stigmas are. Right, right. Yeah, yeah great point. Anything else you'd like to, uh, to add? Oh, well, thank you for talking to me. Perfect. Okay, so those were all of our discussions and the posters that we had time to interview. Again, we apologize that we couldn't get to every single presenter, both, you know, oral and poster alike, but unfortunately, due to time constraints, it just was unrealistic, but... Uh, we're happy to share abstracts, too, with any listener that says, hey, I'd like to read more about, or put you in touch with some of these students. But I think what these, what, um, what seven, eight or so, eight or so um, discussions really highlighted was the fact that our students are doing some really good work here. And regardless of whether it's within scientific field or in arts and humanities field, uh, these students are making an impact. And um, especially at this first inaugural um, arts and science symposium here at Teal. Now we've I had a research sort of symposium every year for a very long time, but this 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 year it was a little bit more special because it was a full day event classes were canceled yes. uh, so everybody can focus on this research day and, yep. uh, yeah but it's it's nice to see you know a focus being placed on highlighting this student research and giving the entire campus community an opportunity to not worry about classes meetings anything like that everybody goes over listens to these talks goes to the posters and really gives the attention that is i would say overdue to our undergraduate student researchers so yeah it was was a really great great there was a keynote address as well and uh the uh, Teal Choir uh, wrapped up the day's events with a little performance, yeah. and uh, uh, it was it was scholarship on every level and every department. The uh, students uh, displayed uh, some of their art or mm-hmm. sculptor sculptings in the gallery. It was also uh, student uh, paintings and sculpting day type thing in addition to the science. But no, it was a fantastic day, and uh, thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening. Uh, that is, do you want to add something else before we wrap up here or are we good? I don't think so. I think, um, we'll have, you know, a few more upcoming episodes and as always, 
Um, if you want to give us any, you know, constructive criticism, um, suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And you can also find us on iTunes. You just have to search for The Biobusters. You can use any available podcast catcher to download the episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. And, you know, I've had a few requests to make us available on uh, Spotify and Pandora and things like that. I'm going to look into that to see what it takes to uh, put get the us on those. There. But yeah, yeah, but I've had a few requests to make it more available other if than... If it makes it easier for the, the audience to listen, yeah, yeah, we can definitely yeah. look into it for sure. And so I'm Chris Fawner, and I'm at my uh, soon-to-be-active Twitter handle, <laughs> at Fawner916. And I'm Delbert Ebi Abdallah, and you can find me at uh, on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. And thanks, everybody, for listening, as always, and especially thanks to Baha Namani for the music. Fantastic. All right. Uh, see you soon.